This is the Rounds Table. Hi, Rounds Table listeners. We would like to take a minute to ask for your help. We're doing a study to try to understand why people listen to medical podcasts. We would love to interview you. This would take no more than about 20 to 30 minutes of your time, which would be compensated with an Amazon gift card. How about that? We've already interviewed quite a few people, and we just need to do a few more interviews to complete the study. We are especially looking for people who live outside of Toronto or people who practice in non-academic settings. If you are interested, please contact us via email or Twitter. I can be reached at K-I-E-R-A-N-Q-U-I-N-N at gmail.com or our good old host Amol Verma, A-M-O-L dot A dot Verma, V-E-R-M-A at gmail.com or you can tweet at us at roundstable and we'll get in contact with you. We would really appreciate it and thanks so much for your help. Dr. Fraser Pollard joins me again today from Trenton, Ontario. Fraser, welcome back to the show. Hey, Kieran. Thanks for having me again. We have a great show for you today. So, Fraser, why don't you lead us off and take us into your article? So, Kieran, I'm looking at an article published in JAMA in November 2016 by Nadine Shihab. And it's a study looking at the rate of adverse drug events in U.S. emergency department visits in 2013 and 2014. So, Fraser, what was the bottom line for this article? This group used an active public health surveillance of 58 hospitals in the U.S. They reviewed all the emergency department cases in 2013 and 14, looking for adverse drug events. They found about 42,000 cases with adverse drug events. And this corresponded with a rate of four emergency department visits for adverse drug events per 1,000 individuals in the U.S., And the most commonly implicated drugs were anticoagulants, diabetic agents, and opioid analgesics. Wow. I I think that we all are concerned about the side effects of the drugs that we prescribe, but we don't always necessarily see them. Why why did you choose this article, uh, Razor? Well, I think like anybody else, whenever you prescribe somebody a drug, you tell a patient why you're doing it, and that's mostly for the benefits or the good of it. But you also tend to emphasize the bad things. And especially if it's something like an anticoagulant, you're really focusing on the risk of bleeding. So we know which drugs have these bad side effects, but I wasn't really clear on the rate and severity at which they occur. So this article seemed to give some insight into that issue. Okay, so so take us through the study uh, design. What did they do and where did it take place? So this study took place in the U.S., There was 58 hospitals that had agreed to participate in a cooperative that were doing active drug surveillance. And what this active surveillance allowed was basically a chart review. And what they did was to look at all of the emergency department visits in 2013 and 2014 and pick out those which were for adverse drug events. And then those charts were then analyzed further for which drugs were implicated in those uh, events and whether or not it led to hospitalization. So I'm just going to see if I got this right. So you have a group of hospitals that have agreed to participate voluntarily. So in active surveillance for adverse drug events and any patient who comes through their emergency department, their chart gets looked at to see if the reason that they visited was for an adverse drug event. And then if it was, it gets included in this study. Do I have it right? Yeah, that's that's exactly it. So patients weren't selected for, but the emergency department cases were. And really, if you were to say, what were the inclusion criteria, you'd say all emergency departments at these hospitals in 2013 and 2014. But 
then when you wanted to find the cases that were further reviewed, those were cases in which prescription or over-the-counter medications, dietary supplements, homeopathic products, or vaccines were implicated in the adverse events. It didn't include uh, recreational drug use at all. And further, they actually excluded certain things that actually might occur at higher rates in our population. So drug withdrawal, drug therapeutic failures, occupation exposures, intentional self-harm, recreational drug use or abuse, and uh, any adverse events from treatments received in the emergency department were excluded from this review. Probably very clinically important things that happen to people who take drugs uh, recreationally or prescription, but really they want to find out what are the rates of the side effects of drugs when they're taken appropriately. Is that is that accurate to say? It seems like that's what they were going for based on their inclusion exclusion criteria, yeah. Okay. So what was their primary outcome? What were they looking at? So their main question was, what are the rates of adverse drug events in emergency department visits? And what are the rates of hospitalizations secondary to adverse drug events in 2013 and 2014 in the U.S.? And there were some secondary outcomes they were they were looking at. They wanted to look at the most commonly implicated drug classes and wanted to break that down by age group. They also wanted to look at the type of drug reaction that they had. And they specifically wanted to find clinically significant events. And these are ones you could probably think of easily. So, for example, rates of major bleeding for people on anticoagulants, rates of hypoglycemia for people on diabetic medication. And they'd also looked at some moderate and severe allergic reactions. So things that we would see commonly and the things that we'd think about when we are prescribing drugs. I'm just curious to know exactly how did they calculate this rate of adverse events in emergency department visits? So they did this by estimating the overall number of ED visits per hospital that serves a certain population size. And then they extrapolated that to the number of ED visits in the total of the United States. Right. I think overall what you're, what you're saying is that it's, it's not a true measure of the actual number of adverse drug event visits in emergency departments across the entire United States. It is just an estimate based on the participating hospitals and the population they serve to extrapolate to an overall event rate across the U.S. Yeah, exactly. So take us through the main findings then. What did they find? So they found that there's an estimated four visits to an emergency department for an adverse drug event per thousand individuals in the U.S., and 27% of those resulted in hospitalization. The secondary outcomes I think are most interesting. So first of all, more than a third of those visits occurred in people over age 65 years old, which is something I think we would expect. But importantly, they compared the data from 2013 and 2014 to that in 2005 and 2006. In 2005 and 2006, the rate for people over 65 was 5.2 per thousand people. And then coming forward to 2013-2014, that's 9.7 per thousand people. So a significant increase. Yeah, like almost a doubling in the rate of adverse drug events in elderly individuals in the last 10 years. Yeah, exactly. And the most commonly implicated ones were ones that you could probably guess. Anticoagulants, diabetes agents, and opioid analgesics. And those made up 47% of these visits. What about antibiotic use? It, it did play a role all the way across the whole spectrum of age, but it actually made up more than half of the visits for children under five years old, which is an important piece to keep in mind. 
Yeah, and I think that makes sense. Kids who are under five aren't typically on a lot of medications, and then they have an infection and get an antibiotic. So it's probably such an alarming number because those are pretty much the only types of drugs that they take. Yeah, exactly. It was probably an expected finding, yeah. Any other uh, points or observations you wanted to make about this study? So one thing that stood out was a comment by the authors in the discussion saying that NOACs are increasingly implicated in ED visits for anticoagulant adverse drug reactions. And what was surprising is they felt that since these drugs are being marketed as safer, they maybe shouldn't be taking up a bigger share of the drug reactions. First of all, I don't think it's the right context to discuss their safety. There's head-to-head trials for that. So I, I would shy away from taking any information from this with regards to how safe they are. Also, we know that people are prescribing these more frequently, so they're going to be using those more frequently, and then they're going to be having more drug reactions. And also, the population is changing as well, and whether people are more likely to, to bleed or not bleed also complicates the matter here too. The, the authors themselves comment on the fact that between 2009 and 2014, the use of oral anticoagulants uh, went from about 38% in 2009 to 57% in 2014. And those are percentages as far as the proportion of emergency department visits for adverse drug events. So, you know, it's possible that these drugs make up a larger proportion of prescribed drugs overall. And then hence, you're going to see that signal over in the rates of ED visits. So I I agree with your point there, Fraser. Any other points that you thought important to highlight? Well, they did look specifically at drugs that you're always supposed to avoid in older adults as per the beers criteria. And they found that those drugs were only implicated in 1.8% of these adverse drug event visits. This is a bit surprising, but the good side to it is that it would suggest that we're doing a good job of following those recommendations and keeping them out of the drug regimens of elderly people. Yeah. I think an important point to make that we we are making progress in drug safety overall. Fraser, what are the main takeaway points you want our listeners to get from reviewing this study today? Well, the study basically tells us that emergency department visits for adverse drug events are not uncommon. And to help reduce the rates, you should carefully consider and monitor anticoagulants, diabetes drugs, and opioids in adults and review appropriate indications for antibiotics in children. There's a lot of other data that comes out of this article, but you really have to stick to the higher level pieces of information here. And I think that if you can focus on the broad categories and try to alter your prescribing and education of patients based on that, I think that it could help some individuals and probably the population as a whole. And it would be a good extension of what most of us already try and do and keep our patients safe. Yeah, and I think that this paper also has implications for policymakers and administrators to say that what are the targets that we as a governing body should focus on when we're talking about drug safety and trying to educate the population, educate physicians, and monitor for these uh, adverse drug events. So I think that that would be another takeaway for me from this paper. Fantastic, Fraser. Thank you very much for taking us through that. So let's move on to the article that I chose. And this is an interesting study that looks at the thresholds for abdominal aortic aneurysm or AAA repair, but it compares it between the US and the UK. And this was published in the New England Journal of Medicine on November 24th, 2016. And the first author is Kartha Kesselingham. So Kieran, what's the bottom line for this article? 
So this was a retrospective observational study of individuals with abdominal aortic aneurysms who were admitted for elective repair. And it showed that if you lived in the United Kingdom, you were half as likely to undergo repair than if you lived in the U.S. And what was associated with that was that you were three times more likely to die of an aneurysm-related death in the U.K. than in the U.S. That's a pretty dramatic difference. Did you choose it for a specific reason in the article? Personally, I'm not a, I'm not a vascular surgeon, uh, nor am I a policymaker when it comes to guidelines around thresholds for AAA repair. But to put it in the context of the importance of why this issue is looked at, there really is global variation due to uncertainty in what the true threshold for AAA repair should be. Given that the decision to repair this and the actual procedure and surgery to repair it is associated with significant risk. Now that, that operative risk is counterbalanced by the risk of life-threatening rupture. So we know that the risk of rupture exponentially increases with the diameter of the AAA such that current guidelines suggest that you should strongly consider repairing a AAA when the diameter reaches 55 millimeters in men or 50 millimeters in women. Okay. Uh, but again, you have to weigh the risks and benefits of the individual in front of you. So this study really sought to compare this variation between size thresholds in the United States and the United Kingdom, and then look at the possible associations between differences in those size thresholds and AAA-related mortality. Okay, so did they do this at specific sites in the U.S. and the U.K., or was it a multi-center study? Right, so the, the really the way to think about the design of this study was that it's, it's sort of a two-part study. And, and they look at the time frame between 2005 and 2012, and what they use is large healthcare administrative data sets between the U.S. and the U.K. So it's not limited to one particular site. It's sort of these databases across the entire country that capture these individuals. Part one, you have a case control study of individuals who come into hospital for elective AAA repair in the U.S. or in the U.K., they compare those country groups to each other. Um, and then your second part is a similar case control design, U.S. versus U.K., of individuals who had ruptured AAA and were admitted to hospital. And so who was included in the study? They looked at all individuals who were admitted for elective AAA repair, and then the second part who were admitted with AAA rupture during the same time period. Okay, so pretty straightforward. Right. What was the primary study question? So really they wanted to know, are there differences between thresholds of AAA diameter between the U.S. and the U.K. such that individuals are operated on at different points related to those diameters? And is this difference in diameter and thresholds for repair associated with different rates of rupture between the two countries? Okay. And what were the primary outcomes? So they really wanted to look at the frequency of elective aneurysm repair expressed as a rate per 100,000 persons, and then they compare those between the two countries. Then they wanted to look at in-hospital mortality rate, as well as long-term survival at three years. Okay, and what did they find with regards to those outcomes? So they identified 29,000 repairs of intact, this is the elective group, AAAs in the UK, and 279,000 repairs in the U.S. over that seven-year period between 2005 and 2012. And those are, you know, roughly proportional with the population differences. But if you looked at a rate per 100,000, so in the U.K., there was 27 repairs per 100,000 individuals in 2005, and that marginally increased to 32 repairs per 100,000 individuals in 2012. Now, if you compare that to the U.S., 
you had a rate of almost double that. So 58 repairs per 100,000 in 2005 and 64 per 100,000 in 2012. So rates are significantly different between the two countries. After you adjust for age and sex, as the numbers already suggest, you are half as likely of having a repair in England compared to the U.S. Okay. Now, a secondary point to talk about is there's been a newer technique developed in the last you know decade or so that uses endovascular repair instead of open surgical repair. And earlier on, it was less likely to be performed in the U.K. than in the U.S., 45% versus 67% in 2005. But England clearly has adopted this practice over time. And because you had about 67% of the repair in England being done via endovascular techniques versus 75% in the U.S. in 2012. Okay, Karen, what about the other outcomes on survival and rupture? So in-hospital mortality did not differ between the countries. It was about around 2% in both countries. And if you looked at the different type of technique, whether it was done endovascularly or open, you know, it was 1% mortality versus, or 4% mortality, the higher being open repair. And that was roughly the same between the countries. The three-year survival was also the same. So, you know, about 77% of patients were alive at three years in each country. So no differences there. But here's where it gets interesting. The rates of rupture were significantly higher in the UK than in the US. So you had 34 ruptures per 100,000 in the UK versus only about nine ruptures in the United States. Correspondingly, with those rates of rupture, there was three and a half increased odds of dying in the UK compared to the US from an aneurysm-related cause. So I think it's important to understand the rate of rupture based on the baseline diameter of the AAA. Okay. If you go anywhere from zero up to about 50 millimeters of diameter, you have anywhere from sort of one up to 10% right at that 50 millimeter diameter threshold. Beyond 59 millimeters, so you're in the six centimeters range, that starts to exponentially increase from 10 to 22% risk of rupture. And if you get over 70 millimeters, you have about a 30% risk of rupture at that point. So really, really dramatic rises. And that's where those thresholds for repair come from. The last thing I would say about that is that the mean diameter at elective repair in the UK was 63.7 millimeters versus the US was 58.3. So a five millimeter difference right in that critical inflection point of risk increasing based on the diameter. Okay. A lot of analysis there. It's pretty interesting what they can find with a pretty simple study design. Is there any points that caught your eye? Yeah, I think the important things to point out were that the increased rates of repair did not come at increased expense of operative risk. It's a careful balance between the risk associated with the surgery and also the risk of rupture. But there was no signal there to say that, oh, you, if you're operating more in the U.S., you have more surgically related complications and death from that. The limitation is we don't know information on the functional outcomes of these patients. We only know about whether they died in hospital from their complication of their surgery. But I think the functional outcomes are becoming increasingly important in modern surgery because we're getting better at getting patients to survive their surgeries but there are often complications that occur that leave patients really deconditioned and maybe institutionalized following any kind of major complication. Okay. The other point I wanted to make that was a little bit atypical in this kind of a study is that they didn't adjust for underlying comorbidities in the patients 
like whether they had hypertension, heart failure, kidney disease, these types of things. And they did that on purpose because the coding between the two countries for these comorbidities were so different that they were worried that there was going to be a serious risk of misidentifying patients' comorbidities and creating a problem in their, in their overall uh, balancing of populations. I think the last thing that I think was important to point out is that we don't actually know the frequency of which these individuals were seen prior to their surgery. And that might be important because there might be differences in screening programs between the U.S. and the U.K. And so maybe one of the reasons that the U.K. are operated on at a lower rate and with bigger diameter AAAs is that they're not screened as intensively as they are in the United States. And ultimately, we just don't know the clinical decision-making process that occurred between an individual patient and their physician to ultimately decide to go to surgery. But it is a profound difference that they found overall. Well, there's a lot of relevant analysis that came out of a really simple study design. It's nice to see. Well, I think it's always important as a reflective exercise when you read these types of studies to ask why places may do things differently. Why did the UK do it differently than the US? And what were the reasons that they did that? It's important that we do these types of things commonly so that in our centers where we work, we're not becoming complacent with the ways in which we do things and assuming, oh, that must be the best approach because we do it here. This study highlights the important differences that occur between the two countries, and it raises the question, why? Why is it different in the U.S. versus the U.K.? But we don't actually know the answer or the reasons underlying why those differences occur between these two countries. And I think that sort of this should stimulate further research into why that does occur between the U.S. and the U.K. So what are the main learning points of the article? There are significant differences between elective AAA repair and rates of rupture and death, although this is not all causally linked in this study, they're just strongly associated with each other, that occur between the United States and the UK. And it raises questions about why this difference exists. Is this a cultural thing? Is this a financial thing? Is this a screening program thing? We don't know the answer, but it certainly is food for thought. Okay, well, that wraps things up, Fraser, for our articles this week. It's now on to my favorite part of the show. It's the Good Stuff segment. Now, it's 2017. There's a brand new world of interesting news out there. Fraser, what is catching your attention this week? This weekend, I was laid up in bed with the flu, but the people with heart disease really suffer, and it's actually a big cause of death for people with heart disease of any kind. And I came across this article, which is just on the University Health Network website, but they're talking about a new trial called Invested. And what they're looking at is trying a higher dose of the flu vaccine for cardiac patients to see if it reduces mortality. Trial comparing two different doses of the flu vaccine really hasn't been done and definitely not on a specific population. So this will take four years to complete. But if the data coming out of this suggests a higher dose benefits a certain population or really change the way we vaccinate people and hopefully give a quite a benefit to a really uh, susceptible part of our population. Yeah, I think it's important to look at the evidence uh, for these vaccines effectiveness in a high risk population. And hopefully this will answer that. Thank you, Fraser. Well, I was reading about something I thought was very applicable to our discussion on adverse drug events today. And it's around the use, more importantly, the price of naloxone. So for those of you who are not familiar with naloxone, it's the antidote for opioid overdose. And there's an increasing interest and focus on opioid abuse and opioid overdose and opioid prescriptions in, uh, in North America. 
The consequence of all of this focus and a push to have naloxone be readily available to anybody without a prescription is that the price of naloxone has started to skyrocket. So since 2012, the price has increased by about 130%. And in the United States, they, they have a nasal preparation, nasal spray preparation, and it's you know now about $150 for two nasal spray doses. It's simple economics. It's supply and demand. The demand for naloxone is going up. But you know given the motivation for its use in preventing opioid death, I think that there should be efforts made to mitigate the uh, price increases overall. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I guess it's it's economics and people are creating a product that saves lives and they want to get paid for it. But at the same time, it's nice to see the charitable side of people as well to help out people who are in need. Yeah, and hopefully the government can play a role in helping to do this and not put shoulder the burden on the individual pharma companies. Anyways, great week, Fraser. Thanks for joining us. I had a lot of fun today and uh, hopefully you can come back soon and join us again. Okay, thanks a lot, Kieran. Have a good one. Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week? <laughs>